Please join me in our prayer for illumination. Calm us now, O Lord, into a quietness that heals and listens. Open wounded hearts to the balm of your word. Speak to us in clear tones so that we might feel our spirits leap for joy and skip with hope as your resurrection witnesses. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the Psalms. This is Psalm 63. So listen now for the word of God to the church on this Lord's Day. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. 
I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the centuries, much has been made of the opening superscription on this ancient psalm. The Hebrew reads, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. On several occasions, David found himself wandering in strange and dangerous territory. Two episodes in particular stand out. The first occurred in the years before David took the throne when he was being hunted by King Saul. Saul feared the leadership potential of the shepherd warrior who was loved by so many. And in the second episode, David was being hunted again this time by his own son, Absalom, who was prepared to wrest the throne from his father by any means necessary. Throughout Christian history, students of the Psalms have suggested that this particular poetic prayer was penned by David during one of these two flights into the wilderness. What that means is these lofty words of Psalm 63, this high praise, was offered in the voice of a tragic figure, one who was on the run for his life. Both of these episodes were painful chapters in David's life, but the second one, that had to be the worst. To be betrayed by his own son to know that his own flesh and blood wanted him dead. That adds the tragic weight of heartbreak to a deadly situation. In a way, this traditional history elevates the faith of this psalm to an almost miraculous level, almost to a level that's beyond the reach of most human beings. Imagine a man whose heart is so burdened, who is looking around every bend for a potential ambush, who, knows, who no longer knows who is with him and who is against him. Imagine that man offering praise to his God with such depth and feeling. How could his soul possibly be satisfied as with a rich feast? How could his lips possibly raise joyful praise? In the watches of the night, how could David, betrayed, hunted, without shelter or relief, how could he meditate upon the goodness of God or feel that he was being protected under the shadow of God's wings? 
How could he not be preoccupied with the armed marauders seeking to kill him, let alone the fact that his own son is leading the hateful charge against him? From this angle, David seems to be closer to God than most of us humans could imagine. This depth of faith that few of us understand, a faith that rejoices and praises even in the deepest pits of human pain. On the other hand, the harsh context of this writing may actually make David's praise more accessible, more comprehensible. For this author is indeed a man who truly has nothing left to lose. From this angle, it's a little easier to see how David could say to God, your steadfast love is better than life, because his life had devolved into a cruel absurdity. What's left to hold on to when your own family wants you dead? What hope would he have left in worldly titles or worldly quests? But even here, we are able to find an affirmation of great faith, because even now, David has not lost his. Even now, David is still looking to God with faithful hope, hope that all might not be lost, hope that God might still just find a way to breathe new life into him, to redeem him from the pit and restore his fortunes. When all had been stripped away, when the cruelty and meanness and injustice of life seemed to have robbed David of everything, when he was all alone down in the pit, David believed. No, David knew that he was not alone, that God was there with him. When it was all stripped away, David knew that God would not abandon him, that God would always be there. And that is something that cannot be said for anything else in all creation. Even if all is lost, God is the one and only reality that will always be there. And that awesome revelation must have been what moved David to cry out, I seek you. I faint for you, I cling to you, because your steadfast love is better than life itself. Now, we have to admit, this must be the pinnacle of faith. This is the PhD of spiritual study, the grand prize of religious endeavor. I can imagine no greater faith than this. That when all seemed lost, when David was at the lowest point of his life, he was still praising God, still putting hope in God, still believing that God would come through. David, it seemed, had climbed the kind of spiritual ladder that's been envisioned across the centuries by monks and mystics of the Christian faith who have envisioned stages of spiritual development that would bring them closer to the heart of God. For example, the Eastern mystic John Climacus mapped out a 30-rung ladder of spiritual development and maturity. It began down at the ground with a renunciation of the world, 
and a pledge to be obedient to a particular spiritual father. And then it ascended up through levels of repentance, endurance, suffering, and affliction, the defeat of human vices like lust and gluttony, the pursuit of human virtues like chastity and patience, and climbing even higher, the next rungs related to exercising the love of money and renouncing possessions. And if you could make it up that high, if you could go that far, the last three or four rungs on the ladder promised total peace of the soul, full and complete contentment with whatever may come, and a total stillness of the body and soul at rest and at peace with the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that sounds exhausting. I get nervous climbing a ladder to clean the gutters. This one seems way out of my league, but David seems to have climbed it. Given the peace and the praise and the joy that he was experiencing even while he was being hunted in the wilderness of Judah. What David was feeling was not about work or duty or gritty determination. His spirit had left that behind. David's words were about desire. In his faith, he had gotten to that place where his greatest goal was God. And I read his words and I wonder, how would we feel if we were in David's shoes? Would we be able to praise God like he did? Would we hold on to the hope in God like David did? Would we cling to joy and cling to God like David did? And I'd like to think that I would. But really, if I'm being honest, I just don't know. And that is the hard stone floor of this psalm. And we really can't avoid it. Hopefully, we can make it up to that height some way, some day. But I do think the psalm also speaks to us as we navigate more familiar situations. Out there in the wilderness, David was earning his PhD of faith, but most of us are still struggling our way through grade school. And we have our hands full with the first few rungs of this ladder. Some days we might be up a few. Other days we slide down a few. But even down here near the ground, the idea that we might be able to say to God, your love is better than life itself, might be closer than we think. When I was growing up, I remember one Christmas when the gift that I wanted most was a handheld game called the Digital Derby Auto Raceway. Now, this was in the early days when handheld electronic games were just starting out. The next Christmas, it would be the Mattel electronic football game, and I know many of you remember that. But this year, I wanted a digital derby, and I wanted it in the worst way. It had a little black steering wheel and a little gear shift, and you steered your race car trying to avoid the other cars, and if you hit one, 
a big red crash light in the background would flash and the sound of a spin out would ring forth and it looked awesome to me. So I mounted the most aggressive promotional campaign of my Christmas career. I of course put it in the letter to Santa, but I worked the parent and grandparent angles just as hard. I left no gift-giving stone unturned, and after a while, it became truly obnoxious. At one point, I remember my mom got so sick of hearing about the digital derby that she told me in no uncertain terms that I better not mention it again, or I could kiss my dreams of racing goodbye. And when Christmas morning finally came, I ran down the stairs, I did a hard banking turn into the den, I rushed right to the tree, And there it was, a digital derby game in all its glory, and I was in kid ecstasy. I played that thing nonstop for 48 hours. The two and a half hour trip to my grandmother's house, normally a pretty tough sell on Christmas day, felt like nothing. I was completely consumed, elated, completely and utterly satisfied. And then, well, you know what happened. Day by day, I became less interested. I was getting pretty good at the game. The challenge wasn't as great. It was becoming a bit repetitive, if I was honest. Just the same thing over and over again. This thing had been the thing for months. But now that I had it, it began to grow old. And after a while, it was just plain empty. And the end-all, be-all of my existence was now gathering dust in my closet. Oscar Wilde once said that there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what one wants, and the other is getting it. Rabbi Harold Kushner thinks wild meant something like this. No matter how hard we work at being successful, Kushner wrote, success won't satisfy us. By the time we get there, having sacrificed so much on the altar of being successful, we will realize that success was not what we wanted. And maybe that's part of what happened to David out there in the wilderness. Maybe as his life fell apart around him, David began to realize that all the worldly things he had been chasing, women, power, money, respect, military glory, none of them had really amounted to much. None of them filled what Kushner calls the unnameable hunger of the soul. Now, we can tell ourselves this lesson intellectually. We can have people who have learned it the hard way try and convince us, but unfortunately, this seems to be a lesson that most of us have to learn through painful experience. The realization that worldly things and worldly pursuits, no matter how shiny and attractive they may be, may satisfy for a season, but they cannot stay, and they cannot last, 
and they cannot satisfy the greatest longings of the human heart. Only God, the one who will be there at the bottom of the pit when everything else has fallen away or been lost, only God can satisfy that unnameable hunger of the soul. And I'm not sure which rung this would be, but I'm thinking we all need to start praying for something, something different than the things we normally pray for. I think we should start praying for a moment like David had, a moment when all the attachments of this world, all the things we think we cannot live without, all the goals we think are so important, all the trappings we think we need in order to be happy or fulfilled or satisfied, We need to pray for a moment when all that simply falls away and leaves us with the realization that in the end, it is just us and God. And that may seem like a scary and a dangerous prayer, and maybe it is, but this psalm says otherwise. This psalm claims such a moment will not be tragic or dark or laden with grief, but rather a moment of ecstatic freedom, an experience of such divine depth that we will be irresistibly moved to joy, to praise, and to a convicted profession to God. I can't believe it. It's actually true. Your steadfast love really is better than life itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.